I don't know of any group that I enjoy being with more than students. I really am thanking God for the opportunity to spend some time with you this afternoon. <clears throat> I recognize that students have unusual possibilities for the kingdom of God. Your, God has given you a whole life that's in front of you, and he's prepared you with an academic training and a medical training that can really make a difference for God's kingdom. And if there's ever a time in the history of the world where the Seventh Adventist Church needs to harness the energies of sharp, intelligent, articulate young people, it's today. And young people that have a professional training, the church needs you. We need you as part of the mission of the church, and God needs you to finish his work. So we're going to pray, and then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about medical missionary work, what it is, share with you some experiences, and give you kind of a biblical base, and then let you ask some questions. So let's pray. Father, thank you for these students who are eager to know how to better serve you. Some of them are in the first year, second year of their medical school, others of them toward the end of their training. And I pray that this afternoon you would enlarge each of their vision, reveal to them the place that they can play in your cause. And we thank you that you'll do something special here today. In Christ's name, amen. Now let's suppose this was not, this were not, was not Sabbath. Let's suppose it was Thursday afternoon, and we were in one of your advanced anatomy and physiology tests, uh, classes, and we we're taking a test. Now, I know that students love tests, um, and I know particularly they love it when they get their grades back even better. Um, but let's suppose I asked you a question, and you were going to define it. You need not raise your hand. You need not blurt out the answer, but in your mind. Define medical missionary work in one sentence. Define medical missionary work in what's one sentence. What is medical missionary work? It's something worth thinking about, isn't it? Because it's a term we use, and at times we use terms, and those terms themselves um, aren't clearly defined or aren't clearly articulated. If I were defining medical missionary work, I would define it something like this. Medical missionary work is lovingly ministering in the name of Jesus, meeting the needs of others around us with the goal of touching them for his kingdom and meeting their ultimate needs. So what is medical missionary work? We might simplify it and say this. It's lovingly meeting the external needs of people so that we can ultimately win their confidence to meet their spiritual needs. So we meet physical, emotional, and mental needs, but our ultimate goal as medical missionaries is to meet their spiritual needs. The true medical missionary is motivated by love, not by money, and the true medical missionary has a great desire to see men and women physically, mentally, spiritually whole. The medical missionary's attention is not on themselves, but it's on the person that they're ministering to. And I want to walk you through the Gospels. In the Gospel of John, the first six chapters, and if you're a student of the Gospel of John, you realize that by the time we come to the sixth chapter of John, that we come to the apex of Christ's ministry. Uh, by the time we come to John 6, there are tens of thousands of people that are following Jesus. But it's what led up to John 6 that I want to see, share with you, and then try to practically apply that. In John chapter 1, verse 38, verse 37 and verse 38, two disciples hear Jesus speak, John 1, verse 37, 
and they followed him. And Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? Now often the Bible will pack a lot in a very few words. Jesus said to those disciples, what do you seek? What are you seeking? And I'd like to suggest to you this afternoon that that was the modus operandi of Christ's ministry. Jesus was always more interested in what they were seeking than what his agenda was. And Jesus never began where he was. He always began where they, are, they were. So he said, what are you seeking? It's like the physician who sits down and says to the patient who comes into the office, now share with me a little bit about what's going on in your life. Um, I noted from the chart that you indicated that you were having headaches and that they were quite severe and the headaches were leading to insomnia. Can you tell me, when did the headaches begin? Um, have you had these headaches for two months, three months? Um, when do they typically come on? And so you're taking a history of that patient, aren't you? So Jesus began by saying, what are you seeking? So it's this what seek ye principle. He wasn't beginning where he was, he was beginning where they were. As you look at John chapter 2, John chapter 3, John chapter 4, and John chapter 5, Jesus uses the what seek ye principle and he always meets the needs of those who come. When we go to John chapter 2, you can take the one's what seek ye principle. And going to John 2, there's a social need. In John 3, there is a spiritual need. In John 4, there is an emotional need. In John 5, there is a physical need. And so in John chapters 2 through 5, Jesus meets the fundamental needs of the human heart, whether the need is social, whether the need is spiritual, whether the need is emotional, whether the need is physical. So let's walk through this. We start with John chapter 2, there's a social need. You know the story well in John 2, it's Jesus multiplying the, the uh, changing the water into wine. And it says on the third day, John 2 verse 1, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. And Jesus said, woman, what does that have to concern you with me? My hour is not yet come. How would you feel if it were your wedding day, young lady, and, the, and your uh, relatives were there, your husband's relatives were there, you had just been married, you're going off to the reception, and it happened to be in a fellowship hall in the back of the church because your parents wanted to save on the um, reception costs. And uh, as the, uh, some guy said amen. The lady didn't, the ladies didn't say that, I know that. So, <laughs> and they were, and you were serving the vegetarian chicken sandwiches on whole wheat bread with veginase. And um, as the conference president was coming through line, he was the 52nd person through, and the hostess whispered in your, um, your wedding coordinator's ear, and you happened to overhear it, we have run out of vegetarian chicken. We have nothing left. There are no more sandwiches left. Now, what if you had 232 guests yet to serve and you ran out of all your veggie sandwiches? You'd be pretty embarrassed if you ran out of food at a wedding reception, wouldn't you? And so you can almost take in the embarrassment, and it was much greater embarrassment in the days of Christ. Um, wine was very common to be used at the wedding services, and it was fermented wine at the beginning there, and so it was, it was quite uh, common. 
for them to have wedding feasts, some of which lasted for three or four days. Uh, there were times that a wedding feast would last for seven days. And so here you have this tremendous embarrassment. It is very possible that the family were relatives of Mary. And so Mary, in that little village, says to Jesus, Jesus, do something, help them. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Now, here's a little aside. Some people say, well, did Jesus actually create fermented wine? Um, he did not. You can show from the Bible that it wasn't fermented wine. That's just a little aside, but I will show you how to show that. A couple things. If you say it's fermented wine, you miss the major point of the story you miss the whole spiritual lesson of the story. Because you see, the changing of the water into wine was the first miracle that Christ performed. The first miracle pointed forward to his last act, which is, was his death on the cross. The, the changing the water into the wine, he was changing the water of Judaism into the wine of the gospel. When he was pierced on the cross, out of his side came what? blood and water, you see. Now, if you read this parable carefully, every phrase in the parable, not parable, I'm being a literal story, if you read it carefully, every phrase is pointing you forward to the cross. Let me give you some examples. On the third day, you know all those phrases, third day phrases, destroy this body and what? On the third day, it'll raise up again. Third day, three days, the, uh, the Jesus was in the bowels of the earth. There was a wedding at Cana of Galilee. Cana was the center of wickedness. So Jesus' cross was set between the two thieves in the center of wickedness. Um, the mother of Jesus was there. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, his mother stood by the side. Um, then the Bible says, Jesus said to her, woman, what does concern that with me? My hour is not yet come. You see the expression, my hour? My hour is not yet come. What did Jesus say in John 17 when he was gonna be crucified? He said, my hour is what? Come, just keep your finger here and we'll go to John 17. See, this couldn't have been fermented wine. Why not? Fermentation is a sign of sin. The, the miracle that he worked was to show about the blood of the gospel and, the, and, and his grace, which would never be tainted by sin. So it could not have been fermented wine from a gospel standpoint. Look, John 17. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these words and lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has what? Come. Come. What did he say in John chapter 2? The hour had not yet what? Come. Come. So, um, another way it couldn't have been fermented wine, that was just a very small village. It was, um, Cana was probably at the most, maybe 400 people, maybe 500. There were probably 250 people at the wedding. Um, what did he do when he changed the water into the wine? Well, verse 6 says there were six water pots of stone. They were 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So that means he made between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. How much does it take medical students for a person to get drunk? I mean, you have different tolerances, but how much does it take to get drunk? One glass, two glasses, three glasses of wine? How many ounces? Depends on the person. If you, if you drank five glasses, would you get drunk? How many glasses are in 180 gallons? If you figure out the math here, this would have gotten six, seven, eight hundred people drunk probably. And there's only 250 people probably in that village, maybe 250. So are you going to tell me that 
they drank it all and Jesus got everybody drunk at that thing and some guy drives off an ox cart and gets a broken leg and has to go to the emergency room. Some other guy runs off with somebody's wife, you know. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's, you know, it's illogical. So it was not fermented wine from a biblical standpoint at all. It was pure juice of the grape that represented the blood of Christ that would be shed on the cross for us that was not sin-tinged. Um, Ellen White confirms that incidentally, but you can show it in the Bible. Now here's the big thing in John 2. There is a social need, and Jesus is so sensitive, his, his antennas are up, and he's so sensitive to people that he meets their social needs so they're not embarrassed. The true medical missionary looks for the needs of people. So the need in John 2 is social. Now you go to John chapter 3. The need in John chapter 3 is spiritual. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus, look, do you need a drink? I can prove something to you. I'll change this water into wine. Neither does Jesus say, you want to see me do something fantastic? I'll break this bread and I'll, I'll, I'll share it, you know, and, and you and I can have a big feast because I've just broke the bread and I'll multiply it. And uh, Jesus doesn't give Nicodemus a hydrotherapy treatment. Jesus doesn't begin with the physical with Nicodemus at all. Jesus does what? Goes right to the heart of the spiritual matter. Why? The need was spiritual. Therefore, Jesus came directly to the heart of the spiritual issue. John chapter 2, the need is social. John chapter 3, the need is spiritual. John chapter 4. Now, if you look at John 3 and 4, there's an incredible contrast. In John chapter 3, you have Nicodemus, a man. John chapter 4, you have the woman at the well, a woman. Nicodemus is a Jew. She is a Gentile. Nicodemus comes by night. She comes by day. Nicodemus is well-respected. She is a woman of ill repute. Nicodemus is part of the religious establishment. She has no education at all. And uh, Nicodemus comes seeking Jesus. She does not want to come seeking Jesus at all. Nicodemus, Jesus approaches him with a spiritual, directly spiritual, you need to be born again. She comes and Jesus is incredibly tender. He doesn't talk to her about being born again. He doesn't condemn her. He draws her out. He says, Madam, uh, there's a well there and I'd really like something to drink. And she says, but you, need, you don't even have anything to put down there. And Jesus said, well, can you give me something to drink? And as Jesus talks to her first, she recognizes that he is a teacher. Then she recognizes that he is a rabbi. Then she recognizes he's the Messiah. Jesus meets her on an emotional level. She's crushed. She's bruised. She's had multiple affairs. The man that she's living with is not her husband. And she's absolutely depressed, discouraged. Her heart is looking for love. Jesus in John 2 met a social need. In John 3, he met a spiritual need. In John 4, he met an emotional need. He showed tenderness and kindness. A Jew would not talk to a Gentile. Certainly a man would not talk to a woman. Certainly a Jewish teacher would not talk to her. Jesus broke all the social norms and he met an emotional need. He saw a woman that was depressed, that was crushed, that was looking for love. Men had treated her body like a plaything, but Jesus recognized her worth and Jesus affirmed that worth. He met an emotional need. When you come to John chapter 5, Jesus meets a physical need. He comes to Bethesda, John 5, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda. Beth means sign of or house of. Bethlehem. Beth is sign of, Lehem is bread. So Bethlehem is the sign of the house of bread. Jesus, the bread of life, was born in the city of the baker. See? Bethlehem, the house of bread. Beth Seda. Seda is fish. Beth is sign of or house of. Seda. Beth Seda. Jesus came and called Peter and uh, John to be fishers of men at Beth Seda, 
a house of fish, a fisherman's village. Beth Ezda, Ezda is mercy. Beth is house of mercy. Jesus came where there were more sick than any place else. They were brought and put under porches there. So Jesus came into the middle of sickness and sorrow and those that had terminal illness, and he turned that place into a house of mercy. How many porches were there there? There were five. They were under the porches of Judaism. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. They were depending on some kind of mystical work, faith, orientation to do something for them. They had strange superstitions. But Jesus walked into the midst of all that formalness and with his Holy Spirit power transformed a man's life and turned a place of uh, ugliness and a place of devastation and sickness into a place of mercy. So Bethesda becomes the house of mercy. Every time you walk into the sick room and the Spirit of Jesus comes, it becomes a place of mercy where you do what you can to help a patient you give them the best possible medical treatment, you get your arms around them compassionately, you show them that you care for them, you listen to their heartaches and cries, and you pray for them, and that becomes a house of mercy. Um, Jesus didn't only come to a place of desperation, Bethesda, but the Bible says there lay, verse three, a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. The superstition was that this angel came down. There was a man there that was 38 years, and Jesus saw him, and he said, do you want to be made well? What is your desire? Do you want to be made well? Jesus physically ministered to the worst case. He came to the worst place, and he ministered to the worst case. And that man that was stricken with a palsy for 38 years was made well. Jesus ministered to him physically. When you come to John chapter 6, Jesus had so ministered to men and women's physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional needs that they wanted to make him king. And, um, pro and the first part of John 6, Jesus breaks the bread. He feeds the 5,000. Jesus always begins where he is. He never begins where he's not. He again meets the physical need. And probably one of the key passages in the Bible is John 6, verse 66. It's 666. And this 666 is probably more important than the other 666, at least as <laughs> equally important. But the principles are both are the same. Incidentally, John 6, verse 66 from this time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Why? Because they understood that although Jesus met their social needs, their physical needs, their emotional needs, and their spiritual needs, and Jesus, they wanted to make Jesus king. The Bible says here that um, they wanted to make him king, and uh, they wanted him to rule over them because he had so met their needs. But he shared with them the famous Sermon on the Bread of Life, and they saw that he had another motive, and that was to lead them to his eternal kingdom. And so many walked back, and they no longer walked with him. What do we learn in the first six chapters of John? Here's what we learn. We learn that Christ came to meet the physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional needs of men and women. That medical missionary work is lovingly reaching out to people's needs. Some people that are going to come into your office, some people you're going to visit in the hospital, it's going to be very obvious. They are there because their social relationships broke down, and they may need you to sympathetically listen to them to help them rebuild relationships. Maybe the greatest thing they need is kindness, compassion, forgiveness. Some people are going to come there and they've had a spiritual break with God. And that spiritual break with God has led them to guilt and shame and fear. And that may have led to depression. It may have led to stomach ulcers. It may have led to a rise in their blood pressure. Um, 
or their cholesterol levels. Some people you can minister directly spiritually. Certainly you're going to have to uh, provide medication if they need it or other natural remedy alternatives. There are some people going to be like that woman at the well. Social, socially and emotion, emotionally their lives are shattered. And, and they've gone through the devastation of a divorce, they can't sleep. You know, Ellen White makes an interesting statement. She says nine-tenths of the diseases that men face have their origin in the mind. That doesn't mean that it is not a physical disease. Indeed, the disease is physical, but the origin is in the mind. Nine-tenths of the diseases, the origin is in the mind. You, we need to enable them to have correct thinking processes. And there'll be many people that you meet that like the man by the pool of Bethesda, the disease is physical in or origin and you're going to need to work with them. But the point is this, John 1, 37, Jesus says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? How do you take these principles and apply them in a modern day setting? I'd like to share with you a couple of ways that you can apply these in a modern day setting and uh, share with you some experiences in medical evangelism and show you how that these principles really make an impact when you meet the needs of men and women physically, mentally, and spiritually. You know, Ellen White points out that uh, God will open doors for the medical missionary worker. So I want to take you back to a vision that Ellen White had. It was February 10, 1927. Uh, February 10, February 27, 1910. February 27, 1910. And Ellen White had a vision, and in her vision she was shown that Seventh-day Adventists should have a decided different method of working than popular evangelicals, that we should integrate physical, mental, emotional, spiritual approaches together, that we should look at the whole person, particularly in our evangelistic endeavors and work, that there should be coal porters selling our literature, there should be nurses and physicians and, and physical therapists working all together, that there should be pastors and Bible workers, and so she had that vision. At that time, Roderick Owen was the Bible teacher at Loma Linda and, uh, and um, Elder Burden was the business manager. And they were looking for some students that would take what Ellen White said in vision and try to demonstrate it in practical terms here in Southern California. And there was a student that they looked at. He was an older student. He had been an atheist and he had become a Christian. And he was now at Loma Linda for a medical missionary training course. He was uh, taking a lot of chemistry, a lot of nutrition. His name was John Tyndall. Tyndall's background was quite an amazing background. Tyndall was a lawyer, and uh, he was working for the United States government here in California, doing some assessing out in the gold fields, because in the early 1900s, late 18, early 1900s particularly, there was a pretty lot of uh, mining for gold here. And the government needed somebody, that, a lawyer, an attorney, that would be out kind of monitoring these gold finds and assessing what they had found. So Tinda was an atheist, and he was out among the sagebrush here at one of the gold mines. And in those years, you know, you don't have television, you don't have written much, much in radio at all. And t so around the campfire, the men would talk and swap stories at night. Well, there was a man that had gotten a copy of Desire of Ages, and he was reading it out loud at night out among the gold fields here. And Tyndall heard the chapter as an atheist on the cross. And as he did, he walked out among the sagebrush in the, in the California night, stars you know, shining in the desert, and he knelt down and he prayed and he said, now Lord, you just take my life. He began to pray what God would do with his life. Now he was already a lawyer and he had a very sharp analytical mind. And he decided to go back to Loma Linda and do medicine or a medical training to be a medical lecturer, which he did. 
Well, it was at that time, February 27, 1910, that Ellen White had the vision. And uh, Roderick Owen and Elder Burden came to Elder Tyndall and they said, would you demonstrate this vision? Would you go out in medical missionary evangelism? At that time, Elder Tyndall's wife was not a Seventh-day Adventist. He had his first meeting out over here in San Bernardino, and they baptized a number of people. And this began a ministry where Elder Tyndall would follow the principles that God had given. He would give lectures in medicine. He would, in addition to that, give lectures in biblical themes. When he was in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, they baptized 77 people in one baptism. And at that time, Billy Sunday was the great evangelist in America. It was before the days of Billy Graham. And the Tulsa, Oklahoma newspaper talked about Mr. Sunday and Mr. Saturday. And they said, Mr. Sunday got the crowds, but Mr. Saturday, John Tyndall, got the converts. So Tyndall traveled. He, his typical modus operandi, his typical way, he'd go into a city. He'd spend a year, a year and a half in that city. He'd have nurses with him and physicians. They would give medical lectures. He would speak in all the schools. He'd go to all the police stations, the fire departments. He'd talk about nutrition, talk about health talk about the value of uh, nutrition in the mind. He would talk about the value of exercise. His nurses would teach hydrotherapy. And uh, he would have health meetings one or two nights a week. And then in addition to that, he would have uh, Bible lectures as well. And people came. When he was in Indianapolis, he was having a large meeting in Indianapolis. And um, a man would come in every night. Elder Tyndall was in a tent then. And a man would come in every night and sit in the back. And then he'd leave. He'd come in after the opening song. He'd leave before the closing prayer. And Elder Tyndall saw him coming night after night after night. And this man was impressed because Elder Tyndall's nurses were giving hydrotherapy treatments. There were health lectures. There were um, lectures on stress and lectures on heart disease and cancer. And then Elder Tyndall preached on the biblical lectures as well. So this man was very, very impressed. And he said to Elder Tyndall one day, he said, my, he said, uh, I'd really like you to come to my church and preach. I am the chairman of the board of the largest Baptist church in the city. He didn't know who Tyndall was at the time. And he said, why don't you meet my pastor? So he introduced him to his pastor and the pastor said, you're a Seventh-day Adventist, aren't you? And Elder Tyndall said, well, yes, I am, but we're here to be a blessing to the community and to share God's word. Well, I'm not under the old law anymore. And uh, Elder Tyndall couldn't take it anymore. And he said, may I read you a Bible text on why you believe you're not under the law anymore? And the man said, sure, read it to me. And Elder Tyndall wrote, the carnal heart is at enmity against God. <laughs> and the pastor stormed out and the businessman was quite embarrassed with the way his pastor had acted. The businessman continued to come to the meetings and was ultimately going to be baptized, but he had a large furniture factory. And in that furniture factory, there were railroad tracks that came up to the factory and uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, furniture was going out of this furniture factory all over America. It was one of the biggest furniture factories in America. And Elder Tyndall was standing right by the tracks with this man, Mr. Talsh, his name was, and he was saying to him, you know, have you been thinking about baptism? And Talsh said, you see that factory trains come seven days a week. I could never stop uh, sending my furniture out. I could never stop my factory on Sabbath. And he said, I appreciate what you're doing with the nurses and doctors. You're making a tremendous service to the community. You've certainly caught my attention, but I could never be an Adventist because I could never stop working on Sabbath. Elder Tyndall looked at me and said, I only have one question for you. What's more important, your business or your soul? When you decide on that, call me again. Goodbye. 
Tyndall began to walk away, and he got halfway across the parking lot, and Brother Tausch yelled out, my soul is more important. Come back, Mr. Tyndall. <laughs> Tyndall came back. Elder Tausch was baptized. Mr. Tausch was baptized. How many have ever attended Southern Adventist University? Aha, what a group. This is Southern alumni meeting. What is the name of the boys' dorm, men's dorm? Tausch Hall. Why did you call it Tausch Hall? Because when Southern was in a big problem financially, Tausch donated the money to build the hall. But he was a convert of medical missionary evangelism of Tyndall, you see. And one day, Elder Tyndall got up and described God's plan, how Jesus wanted to minister physically, mentally, spiritually, how God's plan was for every church to be a medical missionary center, where every Adventist church could be open, not only on Sabbath. Our churches are the worst financial investment if they're only open once a week. Why do you spend a few million dollars to open only on Sabbath morning? Every church ought to be a training school for Christian workers so that you have on some nights of the week prayer groups meeting and some nights Bible study groups meeting and another night a cooking school and a stress management seminar and, and God is using the gifts of all of his people and the church is dynamic, active, open, alive. So what happens? Taj is describing God's plan for the church, a medical missionary center. Uh, rather, Tyndall is describing it. Taj is in the audience with his wife. His, Taj's wife is not an Adventist. She's got these diamond earrings on. You know, people used to wear, that, wear those back then in those days. And then a big diamond necklace. And Elder Tyndall talks about Jesus and how Jesus was so self-sacrificing and how he wants every church to be a center, to reach the community, to make an impact on it. Mrs. Taj is so impressed, they pass the offering. She takes off her diamond earrings. She takes off her diamond necklace and drops them in the offering plate. Elder Tyndall sold those, and they built a medical missionary wing on the side of the church to do hydrotherapy treatments and to do health programming. So God opened up incredible doors. Elder Tyndall went to Dallas. We had one church in Dallas, Texas at the time, and the church um, was in a very poor part of town. Elder Tyndall was praying, Lord, give us a church. Well, a church became available. And this was years and years ago, so the, um, it was for $23,000, which was a lot of money. They didn't have it, of course. And Elder Tyndall began to pray. And God said, you're going you're gonna to win a big fish in this series of meetings. You're going to win a big fish, and that big fish will help buy that church for you. Well, Elder Tyndall was holding a cooking school, and he saw a man, 300 pounds, walk in. And the Lord impressed him, that's the big fish. <laughs> that's the big fish, that man 300 pounds. And the man was, he was a meat packer. He came to the health meetings, came to the Bible meetings, was baptized, gave them seven or $8,000. Uh, Elder Tyndall took up another offering, raised 18,000. They bought the church, moved into it. He baptized 100 people in that medical missionary evangelistic work. When I was a young man, God brought me into contact with Elder Tyndall. I used to walk with him. You know, the Lord brings you in contact with different people. He was in his 90s at the time, but his mind was sharp as anything. And he was the man that Ellen White tapped on the shoulder and said to him, you are the one that I want to carry out this vision. Actually, Elder Burden at Loma Linda did and Elder um, Roderick Owen. But he was the one that was to carry out Ellen White's vision. So as a young man, God brought me in contact with Elder Tyndall. And I spent day after day, hour after hour walking. We'd talk about ministry. And he would say to me, Mark, you're young. Give your energies to something that really counts. Put them in medical missionary evangelism. And so early in our ministry, we began working with physical, mental, spiritual dimensions of life. And I have seen God open amazing doors. 
I will share with you a couple experiences in our own ministry. I am in debt to Elder Tindo. I'm in debt to people like Pastor O.J. Mills, Phil Mills' dad, who I interned with, Elder W.D. Frizee, uh, people who helped to shape my consciousness as a young man for the kingdom of God and to see the possibilities. I never had any idea that God would do some of the things he did. And I will tell you a few experiences that we had in communist countries. Uh, in 1985, God brought us to Europe and uh, we began to work in England. We had three communist countries under communism in our division. We had Poland, Hungary, and Yugoslavia. We began to pray that God would open unusual doors. We began to negotiate with the communist government of Poland because I knew that if we could get into Poland, we might get into some other places. And so we began to pray. We said, God, just open up the doors in Poland for us. And so I began to study Polish culture and I began to study industry in Poland. And this is what I discovered, that Poland was losing a great deal of money. And the reason they were is because of work-related smoking diseases. So I went to the Polish government and I met with the communist officials and I said, look, um, I know you're interested in improving your economy and I know that your economy is really going behind the West. I think there's something that the Seventh Adventist Church can do to help you. If we can reduce, and we showed them statistically, if we can reduce the amount of sm cigarette smoking, we can help improve the quality of health, which will help work productivity. They said, exactly. I said, would you be willing to let me try a city? And they said, if you do this, we want you to do it in the toughest city in the nation. I said, what's your toughest city? They said, Gdańsk. I said, why? That's the center of the Solidarity Labor Union movement. It's where labor union is, and they're revolting against the communist government and because they want uh, freedom. And so here I have this tension. I'm going into the nation on the, under the auspices of the communist government, going to a city where the Solidarity Labor Union movement has been infiltrated by American forces and uh, who, uh, in America, you know, was supplying the Solidarity Labor Union movement with fax machines, with um, all of the infrastructure for freedom, and I was there by the communist government to help people quit smoking. The first thing I did was lead a protest march through the city. <laughs> it was, I did, seriously. It was a protest against cigarette smoking. I was young in those days and quite foolish. So, uh, we, you know those, that inflatable cigarette you blow up? So we blew up a cigarette and I began to walk through the city because I had permission of the communist government to do it. And I learned the Polish words, Jutsan Palenia, which means throw your cigarettes away. And I walked through the city with this uh, large cigarette and people began joining the march. And we went up on a bridge and we threw the cigarettes in and then we started our five day plan to stop smoking. Um, <laughs> We then began cooking schools and we were labeled as communist sympathizers because they were having a meat shortage in the city and the communist government had to find some way to reduce the amount of meat that the people wanted to eat anyway. And they were saying, oh, these people are just communist sympathizers because they're working with the government to reduce meat. But we continued to work with health means and God just kept opening door after door after door. And one day I sat down with one of the communist officials and he said, what else do you want to do? And I said, I want to talk about Jesus because I want to talk about the power of God because if I cannot do that, we're going to help people off smoking, we're going to help them on a better diet, we're going to reduce heart disease and cancer, but it's not going to stick. They need spiritual power to be able to overcome. Otherwise, just the strongest ones that have high willpower are going to be overcoming smoking. The rest are not. You get a very low percentage. Uh, 60, 70, 80 percent will stop in five days, but then 50 percent of those are going to go back and you're going to get about 15, 20, 25 percent off because they don't have any power in their life. So I need to talk to them about the power of God. The communist official gave me a white sheet of paper with his stamp on it. 
And he said, you go back to Gdańsk and you show them this stamp and you write in whatever you want to do in that city. We have enough confidence now in you that you can do that. We rented the Leningrad Theater, a theater dedicated to Leningrad during the days of communism. This is not after the fall of communism. And God sent, we had 60 church members in the city. God sent 1,800 people to those meetings. And God just worked some incredible, incredible miracles. We had health and we had physical meetings together. God opened those doors. We continued to pray. We wanted to go to Hungary to hold an evangelistic meeting there. And we just prayed. Billy Graham was given a permit to come to Hungary under communism for three days. We described to the communist government a different style of evangelism. We would bring doctors in. We would have physical, mental, spiritual dimensions of health. The communist government said, we gave Billy Graham three days. We're going to give you a month, a month in a public auditorium. When the newspaper headlines came out in Hungary, this is how they read. Seventh-day Adventists have a different style of evangelism. They have come in to change the quality of life of our community and to make a dramatic difference here. When we went into Moscow, we were allowed to have the Olympic Stadium in Moscow. We had many meetings in Moscow. We had the Kremlin Auditorium in Moscow, which was Gorbachev preached there and Chernenko preached there and the leading communist officials preached there. They sold seats to our meetings there. But we went into the uh, Olympic Stadium in Moscow we had between 18 and 25,000 people coming to the meetings. We brought with us 100 medical professionals. We had 100 doctors and nurses. We took 18,000 blood samples, 18,000 blood samples in a matter of 10 days. We ran large health fairs. We had health symposiums through that city, and God just kept opening doors and opening doors and opening doors. We have seen God open doors in secular Europe. We've seen God open doors in communist countries. We've seen God open doors in Muslim countries. I was invited a number of years ago to come to Pakistan, and I knew that we could not make an impact in that country unless we really met the physical, mental needs of people. In fact, in Pakistan, when I preached every night, uh, there were two bodyguards. One was a huge guy, about 6'2", and, and I would preach here, and he would stand like this. <laughs> the whole meeting. And then there was a smaller guy, about 5'10", but he was rough. He was, he was stocky. He'd stand over here, and he would stand like this. So the first five nights, these two guys didn't say one thing to me, not one thing. Now, certainly before the meetings, we had our health fair going. We were doing blood testing and helping people off smoking and getting them on a better diet and treating their diseases and so forth. We've done this all through Africa, South America. Tonight at 11.20, we leave to fly to Singapore, which is one of the most secular cities in the world, and we're trying to reach China inroads, and we have a large health evangelistic meeting in Singapore. There'll be health testing, and my wife will give health lectures, and I'll preach. But anyway, back to Pakistan. So I preached for about five nights, and I said, I better say something to these people because they're so good guarding. So I went over and said to this big guy, and he spoke a little bit of English, and said, I just want to thank you for taking good, such good care of me. He looked at me with a straight face. And he said, what do you mean? I am not caring for you. The owners of this auditorium have put me here so that if there's a riot in here, we protect the auditorium. You're on your own. <laughs> well, I didn't feel quite as good after that. One night as I was preaching, we had 27 buses that would come. And in that part of the world, women and men go on different buses. So a woman's bus came in, and the women get off, and they were really, really nervous. I mean really nervous. 
And so I said, well, what is going on here? Why are you so nervous? They said, because four men wanted to ride in this bus, the bus driver wouldn't let them. And they said that if you don't get us on your bus, we're gonna come and burn the rest of your buses down. So they said, they really mean it. While I was preaching, a flatbed truck pulled up and 27 men got off with torches and they're gonna burn all of our buses. But it was outside the auditorium, so it was no problem, so I could kill, still preach. But anyway, um, <laughs> they, were, they had the torches, and the police began to shoot, and there was a firefight outside the bus, outside the auditorium. They were shooting, and most of the young men got away, but about 10 of them got captured, and they were brought to the police station. I was in the Karachi Adventist Hospital, where I was staying, I had a room to stay there, and um, about one o'clock in the morning, a knock came on the door, knock, knock, knock conference president, Pastor Ditter, he said, Pastor Finnell, we've got a big problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, you remember those 10, those guys that came to burn the buses? Yeah, I do. 10 of them got captured by the police, and in this part of the world, we punish first and we uh, try second. So they've stripped them to the waist, and they're just beating them and beating them and beating them down at the police station. What are we going to do? And I said, look, you got to get them out of there. I don't care what you have to do. Get those kids out of there. I don't want that to happen. I know they came to burn our buses. And he said, well, you better not come down here. It'll be an international incident. I'll go. So the conference president went to the police station, and when he got there, he knew that these kids were just really being beaten badly. And he went to the police and he said, we're dropping all charges against them. We want them released immediately, because if you don't have anybody that's gonna press charges in court, you can't, um, you can't hold them any longer. And the police said, look, this is really a rough gang. They came to burn your buses. And he said, I don't care, let them out. So these kids came out, and when they did, the gang leader said to the conference president, why did you do this? And he said, look, because Jesus forgave us and we want to forgive you. They began to talk and he said, can I come back to the meetings? The gang came back to the meetings. I baptized the gang leader. We baptized the, uh, a good number in the gang and the gang leader actually became a, a deacon in our new church. I'm very grateful. That's medical missionary work. It's the caring, loving spirit of Jesus. You're young. You're finishing your training. You have your whole life ahead of you. Don't sell out cheap. Don't sell out cheap. God can use you in your practice. Certainly, you're ethical. Certainly, you're asking the Holy Spirit when. You don't give a Bible study when the person comes through the door to ask you about the lump in their breast for cancer. You don't say, well, let me tell you what the Bible teaches. You know, you don't, you're not offensive. But always in the back of your mind, you're thinking, here is a soul for the kingdom of God. God has called me to meet their physical needs, their mental needs, their social needs, so their hearts and minds will be open so we can meet their spiritual needs. There are two ways that you can actively participate in medical evangelism. One is in your office. As patients come in, as you pray with them. As the Holy Spirit opens an opportunity, as you share a book with them. As you have literature in your office as you have Bible study groups for your patients. I know physicians that one night a week invite people as they would like to come to their office for Bible studies. Dr. John Chung, for example, for many years has had 30, 40, 50 people Bible studies once a week. And so you have that opportunity. The other opportunity you have is unite with your pastor. Each of you will be members of a local congregation. You can use the gifts and skills you have in medical missionary evangelism out of your local church to make that a medical missionary center. You can travel on short-term or long-term mission assignments. There are some of you that may be called of God to leave family, friends, and home like Abraham LaRue did, 
like Harry Miller did. <laughs> Harry Miller was the David Livingston of Asia, and God used him powerfully. The Seventh-day Adventist Church still needs medical missionary physicians all over the world to carry out our mission. You have a destiny, you have a calling that God has given you. It's a sacred trust, and I know the Lord is going to bless you as you use it for his kingdom. Now, some of you may have some questions, and Jonathan, we have some time if they want to have some questions. Sure, let's take some time with some questions and uh, share with me a little bit about anything that comes to your mind or some questions that you might have about medical missionary work, about your own role, about what God is doing in your life. Any questions that you may have? Yes? Um, actually, I'm not a student. Um, we accept questions from non-students, Dr. Kim. <laughs> but I noticed that there, the, the Adventist hospital system mm -hmm. is growing pretty rapidly, fairly rapidly, and we have a large system. Uh, one of the problems that we're facing now is that the shortage of Adventist physicians in my hospital, which is Florida Hospital, is one percent of the physicians are Adventists, and, uh, and I'm one of them, you know. Mm. And it's very, uh, we're, 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 the problem is it seems like the Loma Linda is supposed to feed these hospitals, but we're mm. not producing as much. Um, and then, so, so it really gets to go even further back and, and, and go to the colleges are supposed mm. to be feeding the med school. Um, what is being done by, or I, I, I'm sure the general conference sees this problem, but what uh, are some plans? It's a significant problem. There is no question about it. And I think there's a couple things that can be done, and I'll repeat the question so we have it. The question is, how do you deal with the shortage of physicians in Adventist hospitals? There is no easy solution. If there were, we would have done it years ago. But because there is no easy solution does not mean there is not a solution, and there is. I think one of the things that we have to continually do is challenge our medical students with vision. If every single one of you would commit to either working in the mission field, working in a dark county, or working in an Adventist hospital, that would make, I think, a significant difference, Dr. Kim. So I think one of the things that the General Conference wants to do is foster organizations like AMEN. In fact, I'll give you a little inside information. About four years ago, I was sitting in an AMEN board meeting, and we were talking about expanding AMEN's ministry. And we were talking about how, let's see, there we go. We were talking about expanding Amen's ministry. We were talking about how we could do that should we invest $20,000 in ads in union papers. And we came to the conclusion, no, let's put that money in medical students, bring them here, and then help to shape their vision of the possibilities of what God wants to do through their lives. So. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, so to answer your question, I think what we can do is this. Use every means we possibly can to encourage students on a college level and students in a university level to see a vision of what God wants to do through their lives. As we expand Amen, increase the scholarships for students, let them come to conferences like this, it opens new vistas of understanding. I think that's one thing. I think there is something else that can be done from a hospital side. 
if students, medical students, see little difference between an Adventist hospital and a community hospital, they will gravitate to where it's easier to go. And they'll ask the question, what difference does it make at an Adventist hospital? One of the things that encourages me about Florida hospital system, and I have been a little bit involved with that system and will become increasingly involved with it, is the concept of creation health. Florida Hospital is very concerned about building a creation health model of diet and exercise and relationships and trust in God and rest and sunlight and building that in Florida Hospital now is interfacing with churches to become medical missionary training centers. So I think there's two aspects. One is increasing the awareness on the part of medical students that they've been called of God with a unique calling. And secondly, working with our hospitals to remake those hospitals so that they're everything that God wanted them to be. Um, are we over, out of time? We're needing to close. We're needing to close, okay. But before we close, I'm wondering, Pastor Finley, if we could take the challenge that you mentioned last night. You were saying that uh, with your new leadership role in the GC with uh, Pastor Wilson to work with revival and reformation yeah. in the church. And you have come, or the, the group has come up with the theme of 777. Yeah. And I would like to make a challenge to us here as students that we embrace this 777 model. And I think that it would be neat if there may be some groups here. You know at least seven, six other people, so you'd be the seventh person. Plan to meet once a week, one morning, yeah, one yeah. evening at 7 o'clock, in, in the morning or the evening, whatever works best for you. Go through the material that you've prepared in that mm -hmm. small book. Mm -hmm. Study it through, and then to spend time in prayer, asking for the Holy Spirit to come into your life. Mm. And maybe we could even expand this across campus, invite our other friends that were not here this weekend. Share with them what you've seen, what you've heard here at this conference, and that way we can continue to spread uh, the wonderful mission that we've been given here this weekend. That is a wonderful idea, seeking God, praying together as students. Let me pray for you just now as students that the Lord will continue to expand your vision. There's a seed in your mind that God has planted, and that seed is a little vision that will grow and sprout and become large for God and His kingdom. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for each of these students who have such a dedication to you, such a commitment to you. Plant within their mind a seed, a seed of faith. Plant within their mind a vision. Help them to see the possibilities. Help them to know what you indeed can do for and through their lives. You want to do more with their training, with their background in professionalism, as doctors, as dentists, as nurses, as medical people. You want to do more than they possibly can imagine. And so, Lord, enlarge their vision. Help them to see the destiny that you have for them. Help them to see the big plans that you have for their lives. And may they fulfill the purpose for their existence and the reason for their training. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.